This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ghost stories, love stories, and fairy tales. This is chapter 213 of WCBS Author Talks. I'm your host, Lisa T, and coming up, we chat with author Ashley Poston about the good goodbyes. Barbara Borland shares what she thinks it's really like to be a princess, and K.J. Antonio reveals the only real-life character who has made it into one of her books with no changes. A ghost writer who's convinced love is dead finds herself falling for a ghost in The Dead Romantics, the new to-die-for rom-com from author Ashley Poston. Combining the best parts of a ghost story with the best parts of a love story, this is one summer read you'll be dying to pick up. I devoured this book. So why don't you tell us what readers can expect when they pick up The Dead Romantics? The Dead Romantics is a novel at its heart about a romance ghostwriter who no longer believes in love, who finds herself falling head over gravestone for the very last person she suspected, the very hot and very recently deceased editor. Uh, And this cannot be happening at the worst time as she returns to her hometown after a decade gone to say goodbye and to bury her late father and contend with all the ghosts, both real and kind of metaphorical that she left there. So it's fun and bittersweet and it has a lot of grave puns. Um, And I just loved writing it and I'm really excited that people are enjoying reading it. I'm a sucker for a really good pun and this book got me every time. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) mission accomplished. I guess first off, uh, the big question for me is, do you believe in ghosts? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, so... Yes and no. It's it's kind of complicated. So I believe in the idea of ghosts. So with that said, I used to live in a haunted house when I was little. Um, my parents' house was built on an old like farmstead. And it was like a very popular one in the town. Um, everyone knows like the name of like of, of, of like the, the family who owned it because they're very old and they've lived in the town for ever. Uh, and so my parents had a house on where their barn used to be. And um, apparently one of the like older members of the family at some point had a like had like a nook in like the roost of the of the barn. Long story short, we would sometimes see an old granny rocking up in the china berry trees in the backyard uh and it was really uh spooky 
and my mom swears she saw her ironing at the ironing board one time and that she's like felt like a cold breath on her neck and she thought it was the dog but apparently the dog was on the other side of the bed with my dad and all of this other stuff um and they're they're really fun stories and I don't know how much I believe them like looking back on it but I like to and so I love the idea of a ghost ghost story and I love the I love the thought that we can we can make ghosts real but through through stories right like it's not really the the like the act of seeing a ghost that matters it's like telling the story behind it that gives you the chill of the spine or or like the the kind of like what creeps in the night sort of feeling uh, so yeah, I, I believe in ghosts the same way I believe in like anything like pass through stories, right? So yeah, so yes and no. I don't know. Like, I, I don't know if like they, there's actually any spirits lingering or if it's like a glitch in time or if they're just like, if they're or if it's just electromagnetic pulses, who knows? But I love the idea of them. There's something out there. There's got to yeah. be, right? <laughs> there's there, there's got to be. I'm not I'm not saying I know what it is, but it's 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 something. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Florence and her family they they own the one and very popular funeral home in her town. So so death and dying and what comes after death has always been a part of her life. And you know, I was just kind of curious. You know, I asked you if you if you believe in ghosts and you know, for me, the natural follow-up is what's, what's your take on death and dying? Um, death and dying is hard. Obviously it's always hard for those left behind, um, for, for the ones who stay. Right. So ever since I was little, I remember my, my papa who recently passed in March, he always said to me, um, when I was little and my other grandparent died, uh, he was, he said, uh, death should be a celebration of everything that came before and i really like that sentiment and i like the thought of like you can mourn and grieve someone that is no longer present and here personally but i think what keeps them alive is the stories that you tell about them and the memories that you share with other people of them uh, and it sort of, it's like an end cap to their narrative, right? It means that they like exist in the world a little while longer than, than their bodies do. And you do have some fun with that in the book with, with how you treat what happens after, uh, Florence's dad dies. Yes. Yes, I do. I, I, I like the idea that like some parts of your loved ones do remain, whether it's like in the wind or if it's you know in a memory or a good song you know the um and there's a there's a part in the book where i talk about the good goodbyes right um and good goodbyes are just the the the, the good feelings that you have where it's like it feels like they're still there and you know they're not but like the the essence right the the, the memories make them feel alive still so not only do we have this story where we have, I mean, for lack of a better phrase, actual dead people in it. <laughs> I see dead people. <laughs> <laughs> we have we have a person who happens to be a romance writer who believes love is is dead. And this book is sort of her journey going through that feeling. And, you know, there've been everybody has been burned once or twice and there's some people who get really burned and scarred for life in the romance department but is love ever really dead 
I don't think so. And I think that's something that Florence finds out over the course of the novel because, you know, I talk about more than just um, like relationship uh, love, right? It's familial love. It's the love of a home, hometown. It's the love of a good song. It's the love of a good memory. And I don't think love is ever really dead. Uh, but I do think that you can decide to turn your back on it for a while or to try to ignore it, but it's still going to creep up on you no matter what you do. <laughs> <laughs> so as someone who, who loves to read, obviously I have this podcast where I get to talk to great authors like you. I love that the, the power of books and the written word is also really central to the story that you tell. And you've said in your, in your author notes that you like to read because you want to be held. What does that mean? I like I, I like to read because um, what I mean by that is I love the thought of like a book encompassing you where it's like it's not like a like a physical hold right it's like it, it's the hold of like your heart and your soul where you just you would get so invested into a novel where it just becomes this warm blanket like we all have these comfort reads mine is Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne Jones I will read it every time I want to be comforted and held and just feel safe and warm somewhere and that's and that's the book that I always turn to so that's what I mean by um by books like hold me they they keep me in this they keep me in in a warm blanket you know so what's what would be scarier uh meeting an actual spirit or ghost or having to deal with a uh, an editor and a deadline <gasps> um uh, <laughs> um Maybe you want to plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> I want to plead the fifth. Uh, no, I I don't mind meeting deadlines, and my editors have all been really wonderful um, in my entire uh, writing career. So definitely meeting a ghost because they could be strangers. You never know. And like, are they a good ghost? Are they a bad ghost? Are they a hot ghost? Are they a not so hot ghost? Who knows? You know, it's just it's like a it's it's it's, it's like a gamble, you know. So. <laughs> I have one final question before I let you go. There are so many great characters in this book. Can we expect any of them to show up in another book of yours? Mm, I think it's possible to see glimpses of them. I don't think they're going to be as central uh, to other stories as they are to this one, but I am working on a second book that, uh, that does have mentions of, quite a few characters from uh from dead romantics so yes question mark <laughs> <laughs> are there ghosts or is that just something for for this group of uh of characters uh that's just something for this group of characters the next book that i'm working on is a time travel rom-com so Ooh, fun Yes, it is. It is very fun. I, I thought that I wasn't that I wasn't like smart enough to write time travel. But then I was like, Oh, no, I'm just thinking about it wrong. So, so lesson to me, I can do whatever I set my mind to just don't think about the math of it. <laughs> Never think about the math of anything, right? <laughs> Never. I was an English major. I, I, I have a I have a degree in BS. So, <laughs> Ashley, I am totally with you. If it doesn't involve math, it is always more enjoyable. Right? Just it would. That's it's it's the worst. I can't do it. I have to count on my fingers all the time, or have or or, or use a calculator. Don't tell me. Don't ask me to multiply. I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Promise that I'm not going to ask you to multiply. Ooh. <laughs> Yay. We've been talking with Ashley Poston. The new book is The Dead Romantics. Ashley, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. This was so lovely.
This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. There's been a lot of talk lately about who has the right to control what a woman does with her body. In her new novel, The Force of Such Beauty, author Barbara Borland looks at the argument through a completely different lens that of a modern-day princess trapped in a life she no longer wants. I got to ask her about when she first knew she wanted to write a story like this. I did not think that I had it in me at any point to write a fairy tale. It really um, was daunting in a lot of ways. I that I had it in me um, at any point to write a fairy tale. The first fairy tales um, and princess was stories daunting are in a lot um, of everywhere ways. in culture. Um, they have the been first being because um, fairy tales done in about every possible are, way that you can do um, everywhere in culture. And so they um, have been, trying to write one um, with something done was, in about every uh, possible I sort of had as an way idea that you can do of a thing that I would write. And so I'm trying to write one with something that was book and the idea uh, about I sort of had as an idea, but uh, it just kept nagging at me. For a couple of years in my head, I had the found their way into my life so much more. But it just kept nagging at me. Princess stories anticipated that they would, and the only way out really was profoundly than I had ever. People who pick up this book will recognize real life princesses like Charlene Whitstock, who married Prince Albert will recognize real life princesses, even Meghan Markle. Did you spend a lot of time researching what they're? Diana Spencer, even Meghan Markle. Did you spend a lot of time researching what their lives were like before and after becoming princesses? I read quite a bit about Princess Diana and uh, Charlene Woodstock. I'm very familiar with her story, of course, and I have also spent a lot of time in South Africa, um, although she's technically from, from Zimbabwe, which is next door, but um, it, she swam for the South African Olympic swim team. And um, uh, Meghan Markle, I think she started dating Prince Harry when I started writing this book. Um, and I, you know, I have to, I haven't looked too deeply into her life. I have to say, I feel kind of touchy about doing that. I feel very sorry for any woman who uh, falls for the Faustian bargain of becoming a princess. I, I think that it is a tragedy, honestly. They really do give up everything in exchange for, as the world sees it, having it all. Yeah, but the bargain is, you know, monarchies are hereditary governments, which means that women have one role and one role only, and that is to produce more members of that government. You have no other job. That is what you are doing. If you become a princess, if you marry into any kind of monarchy or hereditary government, you are trading control over your reproductive future for what you perceive to be safety and security. But I think the challenge, obviously, for Diana Spencer um, was once she had done that, um, she wasn't needed. They didn't want her to be a person, you know, they wanted her to be quiet and to just kind of take everything that was thrown at her. And she 
was a human being who wanted to lead a life and, and found uh, separating from that, obviously, ultimately impossible. And yet, despite all this, as, as you sit at the top, uh, these princess fairy tales still exist. And in a lot of ways, all of that is kind of swept aside for the, you get to wear pretty clothes and you get to go to cool places and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely everywhere in our culture. You'll see it, you know, your friend's kids wearing every kind of princess dress. Um, if, uh, for, if you're a, a woman who gets married to a man, um, you know, it's really part of the kind of heteronormative marketing of the wedding industrial complex that you're a princess, that it's your day. When I got married, they suggested that I try on tiaras, which like I laughed when they said that. <laughs> um, but uh, I think I didn't, I didn't understand. I've now been married for 10 years. I'm, I'm married to someone who is really lovely and kind, and I am super weird. <laughs> I think I thought that when we got married, we were sort of somehow making ourselves exempt from uh, the sort of stereotypes about man and wife. Um, but the longer I was married, the more I realized that those were roles that we had kind of put ourselves in, in terms of where we lived in society. And that, um, yeah, it's just such a, it's so remarkable how much you see it abs in so much uh, marketing and editorial. Uh, you know, I see headlines with fairy tale in them all the time. And fairy tales are generally really negative, whether they're historical fairy tales or they're contemporary <laughs> stories about, about governments, which is usually kind of what distinguishes a fairy tale from a folk tale. For these real life princesses, there's obviously no way to break out of this role. As long as you say they're, you know, they're monarchies, they're going to have to be these kinds of women. But for the rest of us, do you see us ever like breaking free of this, this storyline that people have created or that marketing and, and the advertising geniuses have, have created for women? Well, I think that a lot of us would like to, you know, um, this is this is modernity. This is 2022. Uh, women and, you know, you and I live in the United States, so we can really talk about the West and that, and that, you know, very specifically, but we are educated. We have opportunities. We are more than um, just vessels for reproducing children for nodes of power. And so I think a lot of us would like to figure out how to have power in our lives that isn't related to our bodies. I think that digging this out of ourselves is, is an important thing to do intellectually, emotionally, creatively. The character in your book, she, she comes from, she, we should back up a little bit, maybe. Maybe I should ask sure. you, <laughs> why don't you tell us a little bit about her? Kind of dumped right into the heavy stuff right at the start. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Thank you. Yeah. The narrator of the book is uh, a young woman named Caroline, who is a retired Olympic athlete who is married to the prince of a small European country. And it opens with the novel opens with her having uh, made a very failed attempt at escape. And then she sort of reevaluates all of the things that led her to that moment. And uh, South Africa is a place that I've had the uh, luck to go to many times over the last uh, 12 or 15 years or so. And it is a place that is, has a lot of parallels to the United States. It's a young democracy. It has an uh, incredibly shameful history uh, in terms of apartheid. Uh, and it's racial politics, um, and it also has a commitment to looking forward. It's really a fascinating place. They have done so much in such a short time since they established their constitution. And I have seen in the United States over the last several years, um, during the last administration, on all sides of the political spectrum, I saw um, 
some fatigue about democracy, the same kind of fatigue about democracy that we saw in Russia or in parts of Eastern Europe that had been part of the USSR and um, a kind of strange embrace of authoritarianism, of looking for leadership. And that is also kind of a princess story unto itself. That is, that is the romance, is that a prince comes along and says, I'm gonna take care of you and you don't have to do anything. And um, so I wanted to find a way to um, have empathy and sympathy for a character that came from a political context that was not our own, um, because I felt that it was a little bit easier to see through her eyes when we weren't having to look back on ourselves at the same time as an American, if that makes sense. For Caro, it's, you realized how difficult of a spot she's in too. And I think, you know, she finds her running career come, comes to an end because of something that happens and she's not sure what to do with herself anymore. And I think any woman put in that position might look for a way to just have somebody be able to take care of you. Absolutely. I, you know, for any young woman who has to use her body for, for her profession, whether you're an actor or a model or an athlete, you're kind of, you're trading your education for your visibility. And that is a, it's a really, and you almost all of those careers do that at the same time in life when you're younger. Um, there are, of course, a couple of really famous athletes who have made careers uh, later in life. Um, Diana, the uh, long distance swimmer whose last name just went right out of my head, but she's in her 40s. She's a great example. Uh, but for the most part, athletes are younger people. And so, you know, once that's gone, yeah, there's a hole in your heart where your dopamine used to be. And um, the tale as old as time that's told to women, you know, find a man to take care of you is maybe the easiest thing to access. Speaking of holes and hearts, I love that you touch upon mothers and the lack thereof. In, yeah. in fairy tales of old and even in you know that's that's been a, a very large critique of the disney princess stories and you write that mothers can't appear in fairy tales because there's no room in the stories for both women what does that mean well um you know young women are generally being traded in these stories they're not being seen as someone who has had children who has had a life um, there's they're seen as someone who is a potential for fertility. That is what the subject of the princess is in all princess stories. And uh, once that has passed, you don't, there's not a value to it. There's only, unless you're a threat, obviously there's crones, um, crones, hags, witches, you know, uh, but generally uh, caring female relationships that don't involve um, the use of the body, so to speak, uh, just don't exist in fairy tales. It's um, because they would, I think, protect each other because they would stop the story from happening outright. The flip side to, to Caro's story is that because of this accident she has, she has to have a lot of reconstructive surgery and she turns into, it's, it's almost like your own fairy tale transformation story, right? Like, a, the, uh, like an ugly duckling, if you will. Yeah. And you really get into beauty that you're born with versus beauty that is made and what is beauty. And I guess that kind of is encapsulated in your title. We live in a culture right now that sees that we see a lot of women in the public eye um, undergoing uh, physical transformations to try to uh, change their appearance in some way, shape or form. And I, I find that most of the people I know tend to be pretty misogynistic about this. You know, you can be standing in a room full of the most sensitive, thoughtful people on the planet and you say Meg Ryan's face and everyone suddenly kind of looks um, unkind. And um, 
I think that whether you have been in an accident, like Caroline, the protagonist of The Force of Such Beauty, or uh, or whether you feel very desperately that uh, changing your face is an important part of your economic future for yourself, um, you know, it's a profound thing to have to do to your body. And it, I'm curious if we can reframe our judgment around our peers, around our peer woman, about how other people choose to change themselves for something that they think they're going to get. You know, it's always an exchange. Um, and I hope that, uh, I think that with Caroline, the reader feels sympathetic towards her. They don't feel judgmental of her having to go through that experience. And which is why when, when that ending of yours comes around, it really does <laughs> blow you away, but we're not going to give that away. <laughs> no, 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 we shouldn't give it away. <laughs> no, um, the book, the book is such a, a, you really get drawn into this story about her and, and everything else that's going around her. And as, as she starts to uncover these pieces about herself and also about the man she married and the country to which she's basically now an employee in a way, or a, a breeder, I guess, you know, yeah. you, you end up really encapsulated by her and you realize that she, she's a prisoner in her own life. Yeah, I really, you know, I think it's important to uh, look at the archetypes that shape us with empathy and with care because they, they didn't just shape us. They shaped our mothers. They shaped our grandmothers. You know, women's economic futures for a long time have been determined by marriage and procreation. And this is something that is um, a huge part of our cultural discourse. And the last hundred years of education for women in America has not erased that overnight. Um, but I don't think that contempt or um, or bitterness is necessarily the right way to approach it. I, I, I really am always, yeah, I, I want the story to kind of help lift some of that in the reader. So I guess in the end, what do you really want readers to be able to take away from Caroline and her story? Well, I would like them to to see princess stories a little bit differently. You know, I think generally the language around princess story is either it's either uniformly positive or it's relentlessly misogynistic. You know, what a little princess. You can sort of see someone saying that to define a woman who is vain or who is theoretically vain, theoretically frivolous. Um, or it's a, a woman who is a prize. And, uh, and yet these words are applied to all of us. They're, we all think about them and we all take them in. And I, and I hope that we can see them as, um, see the princess story as one that is, is more about a control over a woman's body, really a state control over a woman's body. And I hope that we can maybe, the reader will find a, find a new perspective on that. We've been talking with Barbara Borland. The new book is The Force of Such Beauty. Thank you so much for your time today. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Anyone who has ever doubted they were good enough or pretty enough or successful enough will totally relate with the main character of In Her Boots, the fun new novel from K.J. Delantonia. Rhett Gallagher is a best-selling author of an inspirational book for independent and adventurous women. But only her best friend knows that. That's because Rhett likes to hide behind the pseudonym she wrote it under. Until that one day, she decides to reveal herself to the world and things get, well, complicated. Did I mention there's also an escape artist pony in this story? Here's KJ. I think like to think of In Her Boots as being about the adult that we think we've grown into, the child that our mother will always see and our terrible fear that our mother is right. It is also about a woman who has written a memoir about her life as a, as a solo traveler and as, as someone who sort of makes her own way in the world. And she's written this in part because that really is her, but also in part because she um, struggles to see herself uh, in that way. And she wrote it under a pseudonym. And um, when she returns to the United States to take over the family farm, she needs to uh, she she decides she's going to own the book. She's going to be the person that wrote it. But when at her first opportunity to sort of put her physical self into the role of the author, uh, her mother turns out to be there. And the one person she can't do this in front of is her mother. So she grabs her best friend, throws her on stage instead, in, because which totally works in the context of the story and is a horrible idea because then her mother turns out to determine whether she can take over the family farm and come home. And her mother is not at all impressed with Rhett, but she's very impressed with whoever wrote this book. And things get complicated from there. Now, the scheme that Rhett and her best friend Jasmine cook up really, I think, only works because they have such a great friendship. <laughs> and they aren't sisters, but they might as well be. Uh, they're better than sisters because they're choosing it. Um, yes, yes. It's it's only works because they have such a, a depth of, of closeness and also because they have such great admiration for each other. Um, uh, and uh, in, in, a, in a terrible way, it kind of works because then they're also hiding a piece of themselves from each other. So um, they're, they're able to sort of pull this thing off where uh, Jasmine becomes the person that Rhett has been for the past 20 years. It's a very specific thing that, that they find themselves in and, and it becomes really, really hard to get out of. So Rhett is the reluctant author. Jasmine is the baker friend with a husband who wants everything to be vegan and healthy. <laughs> yes. Which one are you more like? Are you more like Rhett or are you more like Jasmine? I don't have the vegan <laughs> the vegan husband. Thank goodness. Um, I, which one am I? I'm probably more Jasmine. But the um, at least in my outward um, uh, take on the world. But Rhett's uh, constant preoccupation with how sh other people see her is definitely some that come something that comes from within for me, and it's something that I've only realized um, 
you know, uh, fairly recently in my life that I spend a lot more time thinking about who I am on the outside and who other people see me as than I do about, um, about who I really am. And I hope I didn't throw you off too much by jumping into that relationship first, because like most daughters, I decided to put off the talk about mothers. (laughs) And so we have this relationship between Rhett and her mother. And I guess it's universal that parents are always going to think that whatever a child decides to do is not the thing that they should be doing. I hope that's not universal as a parent. (laughs) I'm really really hoping that when my children uh, get to the point of making those kinds of decisions, I will not be secretly thinking that. Um, But absolutely, it's it's something that I've felt and seen and struggled with in my own parental relationships. And um, although less so with my mother than with my father, which is maybe why I write about my mother, or I don't write about, this is not my mother. That's the, that's the joy of it, that she's absolutely 100% not my mother. I think I really like, um, I really enjoyed giving both of them these huge personalities and, and distinctions that were both similar and also very different and then forcing them to confront it because that last piece is what most of us don't um, don't end up doing because it's it's very frightening and then when you're not doing it in a book you don't know what the ending might be so Rhett in this story has written a book that a lot of young women end up finding inspiring and she views the person who wrote it as her superhero alter ego so Mm -hmm. my question to you is do you have a superhero alter ego um, not, not, not exactly in that sense, but it did come from a, a joke slash superhero alter ego that my best friend and I had when we were kids, we called her today's action woman. And you can tell by the name that that, that was us being silly, but it was also kind of real. You know, what we would, as we got older, we, what would today's, whenever it would be like a, both a joke and that sort of moment of calling the other person to realize that maybe what they were trying to do wasn't possible. What would today's action woman do? So a whole different take then on what would Jesus do? <laughs> a really different take. Yeah. But we, 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 you know, if I wrote that, it, those letters and sent them to my friend in a text, she'd know what it was instantly. I love that. And I love that you can still have that joke all these years later. <laughs> Very much so. As a city slicker, I love your farm setting. And I love that you kind of take on that whole, oh, it's a farm, I could do that kind of mindset and really (laughs) put it out of people's heads that this is hard and this is exhausting work. Yes, um, a, a funny side note of this this book is so I we we live on a farm that we do not have to make our living from. Thank goodness, because um, I, I could write entire books about the economics of farming and then everyone would fall asleep. But there was a, a, a moment in the writing of this book when my editor, who's a, a, a New Yorker, although she lives in North Carolina now, said, could we have just one haying scene? Because they hay the field twice. And I was like, yeah, we do it twice every year, sometimes three times. And she was like, yeah, maybe in fiction. No. So, um, so we, we, we had to cut back some on the, the gritty reality of what it's actually like to, to try to make this a financial possibility. But the animals got to stay. I love Brownie the, the Pony and Teddy the Llama. <laughs> I don't own Teddy the Llama, but I can literally see Brownie the Pony now. And Brownie Aww. is absolutely the only, pro- only character I've ever taken directly from life. 
He is so, exactly like that. And he will always be exactly like that. And I don't think he worries at all about how he presents himself to the world. So your brownie's an escape artist as well? Yes, he is. In fact, just two <laughs> nights ago, um, my neighbor slash the, the person that manages the real horse barn right on our property uh, texted me and was like, we just heard clip clop, clip clop downstairs. And fortunately, my kid had forgotten to close the gate because gates are easy to fix and fences are not. So we've, we, have, we have built quite the fence to keep Brownie in at this point. So one more question before I let you go. Why do you like writing books about how hard it is to figure out what makes us happy? Oh, because it stuns me, I think. When, the moment when I realized that that was a thing that I found difficult um, and that a thing that a lot of people found it difficult, I think it's such, a, um, it's such an unobvious problem. I don't think uh, we would necessarily... I, I think if, if I said to... If somebody most of the time, because, I'm, I, because I've thought about it, that's not true of me. So maybe I, what I think is that if I said to most people, you know, do you know what would make you happy right now? They would be like, of course. Um, but then we make, you know, we don't necessarily do the things that actually make us happy. Uh, a long answer to what was maybe meant to be a short question. But I often think about that research that when we select a place to live, what would really, the thing that, that, people say makes them happiest about the people place they live now tends to be their, their neighbors. But the thing that we choose based on tends to be location and the beauty of the, the spot, not the, or the apartment, you know, or the house or whatever it is we're choosing from. Um, and I, I just, that fascinates me that, that we make these mistakes. Well, I think if readers are looking for something to make them happy, they should pick up In Her Boots. KJ, Del Antonia, thank you for your time today. Thank you. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, author Madeline Martin takes us back to Europe during World War II for a tale about the power of words and the importance of sharing one's stories. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.